But I was, I was completely obsessed with baseball. Uh, I played on the team. I wasn't a great player, but I was good enough. I played on the team. I went to as many games as I could. I read stacks of books. I collected baseball cards. I listened to radio, listened to you know the, the games, but also the stupid talk shows about baseball. That was scholar and baseball lover Lincoln Mitchell. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Every week on this podcast, you'll get to know academics, small business owners, bartenders, and San Franciscans from all walks of life as they tell stories, share personal histories, and try to put into words what makes this city so special. Lincoln was born in New York City, but spent his early life in San Francisco after his family moved west. In this podcast, he talks about what the city was like back in the 70s, some schools he went to, the differences and similarities between New York and San Francisco, and the genesis of his love of baseball. Also, as our show Love Letters to the City draws to a close, we wanted you to know that we're having a closing party at 63 Bluxom Street Gallery this Friday, February 14th from 6 to 8. The event is free, and there will be art, music, a letter-writing station, and beer and wine. Here's Lincoln. I was born in New York City. I am kind of a cultural and ethnic stereotype of a New York Jew. Um, I say that with, with a fair amount of pride, as all New York Jews, including Harvey Mokto, did. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, my, my family was in New York because that's where the boat stopped, and they were happy to be there. And, uh, but we moved out here in 71, frankly, as my parents' marriage was dissolving. So I was almost four years old. And, you know, I continued to go back to New York at least once a year to visit my grandparents and my aunt and uncle and my cousins back there. But San Francisco was always home. And... and you know, I've now lived in, I've lived in New York since 1990, but you know, San Francisco is the place I think of as the place where I was a kid, where I grew up, and all and all of that. Formative, uh, formative, yeah. And 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 you know, New York and San Francisco are both very similar. I I think they're more similar than than they are to any other American city, but they're also very different. You know, and I I always say that I spent my first half of my life having my friends out here saying, "Dude, mellow out," and then I got to graduate school, and all my friends said, "How come nothing ever stresses you out?" Right. Um, so, so I, I, it, the best of Lincoln is that I draw on both of those equally to form my character. I guess the worst of me is that I'm stressed out and, you know, all that kind of New York stuff. But I feel like the comparisons of the two yeah. has been a common thread yeah. for me. My 20, can you expound more on ways that you, in your mind, that you think that they're similar and ways that you think they're different? The ways that they are similar is that they are both distinctly cosmopolitan urban places. They are both very diverse. They both have a vibrant kind of cultural and political life. They both are, in today, important global cities. They both play an important role in American history. They're both cities where you can walk around and see people. I mean, New York's a better walking city because of the hills, but compared to L.A. or Washington or Philly or something, this is a real walking city, too. So they just have a real urban feel like I don't think of any other city on the West Coast really does. And others on the East Coast do, but not, not quite as much. To me, the differences are, there's a few. The biggest difference, as I see it, is that people in San Francisco, despite of everything with the tech and all the new money and everything like that, they don't worship at the altar of professional accomplishment. Being busy, not sleeping enough, not seeing your kids if you have children, is not a status symbol here in the middle class the way it is there. And it really is there. And, and it's one of the reasons why it's, it's tough. Uh, the, I mean, this is going to be controversial, but this is, New York is a much better place to be Jewish. Um, and not just because of, not just because of, you know, the food. Um, 
And it, although House of Bagels, there's one, you know, my mother's the longest continuous customer at House of Bagels. They opened in 71, the year we moved here. And uh, Miller's closed on, Pil- on Polk. We never went there. Okay. We went to House anyway. of Bagels. She went to Swan Oyster Depot sure. to get occasionally. And when she would buy, order in advance smoked salmon and things like that, they would always give her a little extra. And she couldn't figure out why. And then someone told her that they thought that she was picking up for the Mitchell brothers because our last name is Mitchell. We are not related. But she would say, you know, big order for Mitchell. My grandparents would be coming to town or something. And it would, in fact, be for, for, uh, for her. Um, perks. Perks. <laughs> <For> the name. <laughs> yeah. It, it, you know, growing up here in the 70s and having a brother and having our last name, which we didn't have until 78. We changed our name, my brother and I. That's a long, longer story. It's a different podcast. It's a different podcast. But, you know, you, it was a, like, a, by the, you know, you got the jokes all the time and the occasional request for tickets. Um, but... New York is a better place to be Jewish. There was, and this was certainly true in, in, in the time period I'm writing about, there was a kind of an accepted level of anti-Semitism here that often was so kind of accepted you didn't notice it. You know, and, and, and I mean, just to give you one example, you know, I wrote this book about 1978, and on November 27th, 1978, a politician, a right-wing politician who had campaigned using the phrase eradicate malignancies that blight our cities, less than a quarter, well, less than, you know, 30 30, 30 years he campaigned, no, 32 years after the liberation of the camps, shot the most visible and outspoken Jewish politician in the city. And no one here has ever written about it in that context, right? Because we just don't see it here. Um, I just came across doing an article for another, a research for another book, an article by a very prominent California historian using the most not very coded anti-Semitism. It was just mind-boggling. You wouldn't have done that in New York in 1975. So, so that is, you know, that, that, that is a difference. But, but it's not like you're, you're out here, you know, it's not it's not unlivable or terrible. It's just different. It's more like America in that way. Right. Um, but so so those are, you know, and and I think it is also true that all these ideas. It is true that all these ideas that start out as crazy in San Francisco ten years later are kind of the standard, right? So so things like maybe we shouldn't just get all our coffee from a can, you know, which in the seventies people thought that was crazy, right? Maybe we should squeeze juice rather than get this really crappy frozen stuff. Maybe we should more on a more serious note. Maybe we shouldn't just let the cops beat up gay people. You know, so so those. This is a more progressive place. New York is a really provincial place that is 20 years behind the West Coast, even today. I mean, ideas that. I mean, I'll give you an example. In 1991, I had just moved to New York, and it was, it was election day, and New York had expanded the city council from 35 to 51 people, and the reason was similarly to our switch to district elections here in '77 to elect a more diverse people, more diverse people, and. It was big headline news that Tom Duane was elected to the uh, city council in New York, who was the first out gay man elected or person elected to the city council. And I remember reading that headline saying, my God, how could this take this long here? But they were really proud of themselves because New Yorkers on principle don't know anything that happens outside New York. So that's a little bit of how I see the contrast. Did you talk about uh, your family in detail about your family uprooting and, and what brought them out here? Well, what brought them out here was that my father, who recently died, but his his life and career were kind of coming apart and he had an opportunity to get a job out here and um, he you know took that opportunity and my mother I mean, it seems to me at that point the marriage was clearly falling apart but and they were divorced in like a year of moving out here that she they just, both moved they both came yeah yeah the, the whole family moved. yeah me and my brother and okay. and so so they she decided to come here and and more interestingly the most interesting part of this story on a human level is that she stayed here after they got divorced, she was a single mother with no support system. Her, her, my grandparents were back in New York. Her sister was back in New York. My grandparents would have been able to have helped her in any way, they, and they did. But 
they would have felt her much more if she were in the same city, but she stayed here. She wanted that distance from the East Coast, from that world that a lot of people did here in the 70s. And she was really, as an adult, I was a kid, but she was part of that migration of people from the East Coast uh, at that period who really had, an, and some were gay, some were straight, some were hippies, some were not, who really had a role in remaking the city and transforming it from, I mean, the, the story I always tell is that in 1964, the Republican Party held their convention in the Cow Palace. Barry Goldwater, you know, was nominated for president. And at that time, San Francisco was seen as a normal American city that was, you know, more beautiful and with better food, which is still true. The second part of that, not the first part. In 1984, the Democratic Party held their uh, convention at the Moscone Center, where Walter Mondale, you know, was nominated and went on to lose badly in the general election. And one of the many kind of bullet points in the, in the post-mortem on Mondale's defeat was that, well, you can't hold the Democratic Convention in San Francisco. It's way too far left and too crazy. And that was a 20-year period. It's a radical, radical fast shift if you think about it. And people coming here from other places and remaking the city were a huge part of that. And I was a part of I mean, as a child, but that was, you know, you knew which side you were on, and I was on that side. And many of my parents, many of my friends and parents were not. Mm-hmm. And you really saw that in ways that maybe took a, a while to kind of figure out and unpack you had to grow up a little bit to realize what was going on, but you definitely saw that. It was a Catholic, more of a Catholic city back in. Yeah, I mean, 60s. like most American cities. Yeah. I mean, through the, you know, this was heavily Italian, right? In 1975, three of the top five candidates for mayor, including the two in the runoff, were all Italian American, right? It was Italian, it was Irish, and that's who, you know, ran. The, there was a kind of overlay of, of you know, white Protestants and, um, uh, German Jews in the kind of people who ran the city but it was and, and that looked like a lot of cities in that regard but it really began to change it was also much more African American for reasons we all know and less Latino and Asian right. as late as I think 19 I'm going to get the date slightly wrong as late 1960 it was 85% or so were non-Latino white here that's a lot so it must have been about 72, 73 that you came out here like 71 oh, all 71. of 71 sorry my math is not good today but you were you were almost you said almost four. Yeah, that's really really young. What? But could, do you have any kind of first impressions for yourself? No, I don't. Well, very vague ones. My brother, who was two years older than me, I remember him like he was amazed how clean the streets were. Now, part of this at New York today, you wouldn't have that experience, right? It's almost flip flop. It's almost flip flop. I mean, today, <laughs> when I'm here now, like my friends and my mother are like always telling me don't leave stuff in the car and you do that in New York I, I mean you know you leave your easy pass there no one's going to break in and take it you, you know here you really it, it, but, but that was his impression I think my impression was it just felt brighter and looked differently but that's a really vague impression from a child yeah really young yeah so what were some of your, your earliest memories here um, yes well I mean there was a lot of personal like my family stuff but I just remember being at a lot of kind of outdoor this is again I'm young outdoor events, not like, you know, concerts in the park kind of thing, but, you know, Ghirardelli Square or events at Gold, things Gold, like for kids, where there were, you know, like drawing and tie-dyeing, but it was definitely, even by then, you know, the, the, the person working with the kids was, was a hippie, you know what I mean? And that was different than, than I think the rest of the country, which is all I knew. Right. So a lot of memories of that. And then starting school. Uh, in and a, please name drop schools. Yeah, name drop schools. Yes. So I went to Stewart Hall for boys from 
pre-kindergarten through eighth grade. I only went to eighth grade at that time. I'd like to think of myself, again, I have no proof, but I say I'm the second most famous Jewish alumni of that complex of schools. The most famous is Dianne Feinstein. But that put me in a very interesting world. And one, you know, it was, my grandfather was completely shocked that we were going to Catholic school and took a while for him to process that. My, it was a great school in many respects. And, and I had a great education and a very good experience there, but a very different world. I mean, I was, you know, I was, these were, for the most part, either, because it's over, it's a Catholic school, but it's kind of, it's not a, uh, again, I'm not a Catholic, it's not a parish school, mm-hmm. so it's not connected to, you know, it's not like you're at, I don't know, 10th and Fulton and everything within 10 blocks goes there, right? It's a, it's almost more of a magnet Catholic school. Okay. Who were the teachers? The teachers, well, they weren't all nuns. Okay. Some of them were. There was uh, Sister Schroeder was a nun. Uh, Norm Luna was the social studies teacher. Cornelius Church was the math teacher. I can go uh, through this. Those are great At names, one point, too. Uh, the head of the school ran away with a nun who ran the girls' school. That was a yes. big scandal. That was fun. Um, yes. I, again, I was too young to really, but it was everyone knew it was funny. And, and, and there was, it was, you know, uh, the Pelosi's, the girls, the daughters of Nancy Pelosi went to school there. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was always an active parent in my recollection. I didn't, you know, not like we were chatting about politics in 1975, but you know, she was around. <laughs> when um, you were like eight, Exactly. Eight I mean, although, although I grew up in a very political family, so if anyone would have been, it was me. But, but it was, I remember in 76, I was one of the very, very few kids in my class who were supporting Carter over Ford. Just to give you a sense of perspective, I just, my, my first political memory of that school is coming home from school in what would have been the fall of 75 and with my, my brother and talking to my mother about this guy with this funny name, Barbara Gelata, who was going to be the mayor. And my mother said, yes, that's a funny name and we're supporting the other guy. The other guy was George Moscone. But that tells you in this very divisive election, the, ch- the chatter at Stuart Hall was all with the conservative racist Republican, not, you know, the progressive Democrat. Today, that would be totally different, even at Stuart Hall. Um, and you said that was K through eight. eight. Yeah. Yes. Any other memories from Stuart Hall? Well, I, I, I have... Hours of memories, and and, and, and and you know, just to put this in perspective, we're sitting here Friday afternoon, as you I mean, you know. But tonight, I have a flight tomorrow. Tonight, I'm going out to dinner with three guys who are friends since Stuart Hall, who, who started with me in kindergarten, first and third grade, respectively. There'll be a couple other guys too, but so so in in you know, and and for a lot of reasons. One of which I think I was just such a, I think when you, you know, this I mean when you talk to people of my generation. You kind of, you use the shorthand. It was the 70s, it was a divorce. Everyone knows what that means, right? But, and it was not a good one. I mean, not that never really a good one, but it was a bad one. And, and when you go through that, you, in some respects, the healthiest way you can respond, and I'm saying this a little bit subjectively, is to distance yourself and build relationships outside of the family because it was just so difficult. So I was always uh, able and fortunate enough that I had some good people around me at school to build Friendships and and the school itself was extremely supportive, and extremely um, uh, zero tolerance for any kind of anti-Semitism. I mean, that was the one place. I mean, I never you never would have heard a word from any of the teachers or any of the nuns. If a kid said something, they got in trouble. I mean, they were really good about that. My mother used to come in every year. This is true. Uh, it's all true. Um, with with and tell the kids like K through five, so the little kids, the story of Hanukkah during Hanukkah season and give out dreidels. She would go into like some Judaica store and buy like 200 dreidels. They were probably a penny each or something. And she would give them away. And I remember about 15 years ago, I was at a friend of mine's house who was, I think he was at his mom's place in the East Bay helping her like move a piece of furniture, something that required a, a, a younger man rather than an older woman to do it. And, 
and we stopped in his childhood bedroom and there was a dreidel on his, he's not Jewish, on his dresser and I said, what's this dreidel doing? And he said, your mother gave that to me. <laughs> so it was a really, it was a great experience. I, I, uh, it's, it's, and it's actually, you know, my, you know, I'm, I'm a secular left-wing Jew and I have this kind of odd soft spot for the Catholic Church because it was such a, a good experience. You said the schools K through eight, so eighth grade is, I, I feel like by that point in a lot of kids' lives, you're, it, you're starting to form. You're starting to yes. really find your identity. Yes. And knowing what little I know about you from your book, like what kind of scenes were you... Well, so I'll tell you a funny story. 2016-ish, no, 2015, we, a, a guy I went to Catholic school with organized an informal reunion for our class of 1981. So this is years later. And it was a Chinese place in the Sunset District. And ended up, and he kind of contacted me and I helped because I was kind of an organizing kind of person. So, so between us, we only got 11 people there, about a 51 class. That's not bad. And, and a number of them were old friends of mine who, who knew me. And I'd say, hey, you got to come to the 26th. Let's go. We'll have Chinese food. It'll be fun to see everybody. And, and, but some people I hadn't seen in years. And we're catching people up. And I'm telling, one of the guys inter- interrupts me and says, didn't you used to like know everything about baseball? And then, and then my two friends who I'd brought her to, a, num- a number of the friends who know me and stayed in touch over the years kind of looked at me and said, oh yeah, he still does. So in, by the time I was in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I was completely obsessed with baseball. Okay. It was my world entirely. I was, my mother was a Yankees fan. My grandfather had been a Yankees fan, then briefly became a Dodgers fan because Jackie Robinson and a lot of people on the left became, in New York became Dodger fans and then back to me Yankees fans when they left. So we were raised as Yankees fans. And then my, you know, the Candlestick Park, the Giants were the local team, and we became Giants fans too. So, so certainly by the mid-70s, we were fans of both teams. We, we, we became introduced to baseball around 76 to 8 as fans of both teams. Okay. Um, but, you know, everyone was a Giants fan at school, and one or two A's fans. And then I was, and the, the, everyone, you know, one guy was from Houston, he was still an Astros fan, I was a Yankees fan. So it was, um, but I was, I was completely obsessed with baseball. Uh, I played on the team. I wasn't a great player, but I was good enough. I played on the team. I went to as many games as I could. I read stacks of books. I collected baseball cards. I listened to the radio, listened to you know, the, the games, but also the stupid talk shows about baseball. Um, so I was, that was a big part of my identity. You know, I was, I was raised in a very progressive political family. So I didn't always... And, and, and Stuart Hall was not... I mean, among the faculty it was, but among the student body, it was not like a warm, welcoming place for people with kind of radical left-wing politics. I mean, this was the beginning of the kind of Reagan era, and, you know, my family hated Reagan. And hating Reagan, even in this city then, made you a bit of a minority. You know, it's, right. so especially, you know, and, and mostly anti-Reagan vote came from people of color. So if you're in a white community, it was really heavily pro-Reagan. So I think I, I was never somebody to keep my political views to myself. So I was, I'm sure if people had thought about it, they would have thought, oh, he was that weird left-wing guy. And now, of course, share the same idea, so it even doesn't matter. Even as a kid, even as a young youngster. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I don't mean to put too fine a point in it, but I was, I was, um, I, I read a lot more than most people. I could, okay. I, I, I was always able to argue and present my views pretty compellingly and clearly mm-hmm. in, in speaking or writing. So I was, no, I was going to win the debate, you know, and certainly if it was in front of a teacher, I was going to win it, you know. <laughs> so I wasn't afraid of that, but it wasn't like, and, you know, I wasn't really into music in a meaningful way then. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a fascinating time for music. But, in 19, you know, you're 12 years old, 13 years old, you're not going to go to the Mab. You're not going to, like, go to the Grateful Dead show. Yeah. You know, it's just a little too young for that. And what I, were you listening to at home? My mother? If anything. I mean, at, at home, I, you know, I think the first music that I really liked that I was listening to by then was things like the Beatles. Yeah. 
Simon and Garfunkel, um, that kind of thing. Okay. And then, and then, and my brother, who's no longer, he died oh, in sorry. 2014, but he was, he was not the older brother who was going to like introduce you to the cool music and right. the drugs and all that, right? Right, right? He was the older brother. He would always go to ball games with me. We went to mm-hmm. games a lot. He was very into baseball too, so we shared that, but he wasn't that older brother, whereas right. I had friends who did have that older brother. Yeah. But I did not. I did. Right. So that, that's a great asset yeah. if, if that's right. I mean, yeah. You know. So you're saying baseball basically just um, yeah. mostly as a fan. Played I mean, I played on the team. Yeah. I played ball all the time in my, you know, the sandlot. Yeah. Which, by the way, is a term that was invent- was first used here in San Francisco. I've heard that before. Because in the western part of the city, there was, you still feel Dunes. now when you play ball there. There's yeah. still sand on the ground. Yeah. So I played, like, you know, and here, of course, unlike New York, you can play year-round. Yeah. So we would play catch in the street or running bases or, you know, various versions of, like, two-on-two baseball games in the Presidio because I lived in Calhalla all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the weekends and even at night. And then, but... I mean, I still have. I mean, I still have friends who come over, and they, you know, old friends who come over while out in New York, and they want to. Oh, can I look at your library? Because I have a, you know, I'm collecting baseball. I actually have to go to Cooperstown next week for a conference and and, and for a book event, and, and there's a one bookstore in Cooperstown that has a fantastic like. It's all the like people like me. They, so, so I'm going to go and buy a bunch. Of, so I've been reading and kind of that's been a big part of my life mm-hmm. always, as long as going back to way before eighty eighty one. I mean. And were you uh, a Niners fan at all? Yes. I mean. Okay. You know, my mother, I was raised, being raised at this point by a single mom, was not from a cultural place where football was okay, right? right? I mean, right. it was kind of for the goyim. Mm-hmm. But everyone was interested in football. I certainly played a lot of touch football like everyone else did, on this, and, and the Niners were the team. Now, they were terrible, mm-hmm. right, in some of those years. But of course, by 82, they won the Super Bowl, but in the late 70s, they were terrible. I mean, I remember O.J. Simpson was on the team, you know, the, not, not when he was good. Right. Right. So they'd win two, three games a year. So, but, but they were the team. Yeah. That was the team I rooted for and, and, and was very, you know, in high school and, and in the 80s, they, they were an exciting team. And it was easy to, to be a 49ers fan. I don't claim to have as deep a connection, but I do claim that that's my team. And I'll certainly be rooting for them in the, in the Super Bowl. That was Lincoln Mitchell. Check back Thursday for part two when Lincoln will talk more about his writing and education, including the research he did on the city in the late 70s for his book, San Francisco Year Zero. Music for Storied San Francisco is by Otis McDonald. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. The show is produced and hosted by me, Jeff Hunt. You can find us online at storiedsf.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And subscribe to the show on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. If that's Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please do us a favor and rate and review what we do. And if you have any feedback for us or you just want to say hi, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>